Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter by the qualities that are most important to you. Then book free 15-minute consultations with any therapist you're interested in seeing. And because 95% of therapists at Alma accept insurance, you can find care that's affordable to You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash therapy30 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash therapy30. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we release these special episodes where we look back at Risk content from our earlier years. Now, for a long time now, the first two years' worth of Risk episodes, the ones from October of 2009 through October of 2011, have been behind a paywall. But that's been a little confusing for a lot of Risk fans who are always telling us they didn't even know those first two years worth of episodes existed. So we thought it would be fun if every other Thursday now we reran an entire episode from the very earliest days. Now, as we review these throwbacks, remember many of these recordings were made over a decade ago. I just ask that you keep that historical context in mind. Today in 2020, there's a vastly different consciousness. Risk has always asked our storytellers to err on the side of not being too cautious, to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible. That said, we also want our storytellers to be compassionate in their storytelling. But even in stories where you hear an overall compassionate context to the sharing, you might still notice some moments that strike you as cringeworthy today. A lot of these storytellers, and myself as the host of some of the oldest episodes, would probably have handled those moments differently today. As always, the title of the series, Risk, is itself a trigger warning. This week, the 13th episode of Risk Ever Made. It premiered in March of 2010, and it's called Fights. I was alone and so afraid of telephones and slow long fades. There was no logic, only twists tied up in knots. I took a risk, I took a risk, I took a risk. 
Hello, friend. You've found yourself in the murky midst of that storm of sound we call Risk, where people tell true tales they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. That was Marshall York up top. He's got a lot of great stuff like that at marshallyork.tumblr.com. Well, fights are the subject of today's exploration. Mind fucks and fisticuffs. We'll start the squabbling with Ellen Tarlin. You can read more of her work at Slate.com. This is called The Fucking of Dover High. I was in high school. It was senior year, and it was the morning of the prom. I was sort of this contrarian kid, and I like to think of myself as the kind of person who wasn't really into going to proms. But the truth is I really did want to go, and this was sort of my last chance to go. The weekend before my prom, my mother and I had gone to every department store in Boston looking for a black dress because I insisted that as a contrarian punk, I had to have a black dress. So I had the date, I had the dress, and it was the day of the prom. I was in homeroom, and the teacher in charge came out of her office, and she said to me, you've been called to the front office. And I was like, what? But I had a feeling I knew what this was about. My yearbook had come out on Monday, four days before the prom. And I had um, put this hidden message in my yearbook blurb. I put the entire thing lowercase, and I put the hidden message in uppercase. And altogether, the capital letters spelled out, fuck you, Dover, Sherburn, hi. I spent the week kind of hoping that nobody would notice, and nobody did, and I was like, okay, cool, I'm in the clear. But now I was being called to the office, so clearly somebody had noticed. And usually the vice principal in my school did all the disciplining, but instead of being called in to see him, I got called in to see the principal, Mr. Wakeley. And I sit in front of his desk, and he's got the yearbook laid out in front of him, and it's open to my page. And he says to me, you're suspended for two days for what you put in the yearbook blurb. And he says, were you planning on going to the prom tonight? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you're not going now. He gave me the whole, you know, this is going on your permanent record. And he said, "Um, where are you going to school next year? And I said, New York University. And he goes, how do you think New York University would like to know what you've done? Do you think they'd still let you in if they knew? And I, you know, I really believe that he at that point had the power to take this away from me. But he didn't call NYU. He called my mother. She was a school teacher in the inner city. So she gets to school. And instead of being mad at me, she kind of pulls me aside and she goes, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to talk to him. You are going to that prom. And I was like, yay, mom. She goes into his office and they shut the door and she talks to him. And I know she's probably doing the educator to educator thing. You know, I'm a teacher, I understand, blah, blah, blah. He'd been getting calls from people's parents who'd seen the blurb and they were really pissed off and the superintendent's office knew about it. And so he had to do something. He had to make this show of punishing me. And he wasn't getting any satisfaction from my mother. So he decided to call my father at work to see what dad would think of it. And the three of them together had finally brokered a deal. I would get to go to the prom. I would not be suspended. But instead of suspension, I would have detention every day for the remainder of the school year. And instead of having free periods, I would have to go back to study hall. And 
I was a second semester senior. I'd done most of my requirements. Every other freaking period in my schedule was a free period. So this was going to be something like 100 study halls between now and the end of the year. But that's not all. The best part was that I had to give a public apology to the entire junior and senior class. I had to do it today, and I had half an hour to figure out what I was going to say. They were going to call a special assembly to bring everybody in for me to personally apologize to them. And not only did I have to apologize, but they had certain things that they wanted me to say in my apology. The most important of which was that I had to say that I would carry with me a permanent magic marker at all times so that I could cross out what I had put in the yearbook for anybody who asked me to do it. I walked up to the lectern to give my speech and it was absolutely silent in that room. Not a sound. I kept my head down and I read my apology. And suddenly, the entire auditorium erupts into applause and whistles, and people are hooping and hollering, and they're clapping, they're standing up. They gave me a standing ovation. And, you know, people start getting up and leaving, and um, I was standing at the front, and all these people, they come and they gather around me, people who hadn't spoken to me, like, since kindergarten, cool people. You know, one guy, he, he said something like, he's like, I can't believe they made you do that. You're right. Fuck them. But a lot of people said to me, what the hell did you put in your yearbook blurb? Most people hadn't even seen it. I'd say like 95% of the people in my school hadn't even known about this. So the entire thing, it had completely backfired. Instead of being like ostracized, I became like the most popular girl in school for a day. And it was the day of the prom and the night of the prom. And uh, I mean, I wasn't voted prom queen or anything, but this was even better. I felt like I was queen for a day. I never actually did get around to getting a permanent magic marker and carrying it with me at all times, but it didn't matter because to this day nobody has ever asked me to cross out what I wrote. Risk. I bought my tofu at this place downtown that I'd never been to before and I eat it. One time I got my soy juice at the place I usually buy couscous. One time I took my solar-powered electric guitar out after five and hope it would stay charged the whole night. But never again. Because it, 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 was, it was like not smart of me, but I just did it. But sometimes you just do those things. I am from southern Louisiana, which is very rural, and I'm Cajun French. My family is super Cajun. They just, like, own boats and trucks and things like that, and I don't think I ever really fit into that very well. My first fight was in eighth grade when a guy had called a girl in my class a bitch, and I stood up for her, and he pushed me, and in retaliation, I swung the hardest punch I've ever swung. But unfortunately, it made a slap sound on the side of his head, and I was accused of slapping another kid for the rest of high school. So I tried to avoid fighting as much as possible, like to try to protect my reputation. My parents were divorced since I was like 11, 
a few years later, my mom finally settled down on this guy who was a Vietnam vet named Rod, who was a commercial airline pilot and about five foot one. Loads of the Napoleonic complex. Like this guy was just really concerned about control and power. He's one of the guys who had slicked hair. He wore tons of brute cologne. And he was the type of guy that was constantly concerned about the end times. I could tell he wanted a son that would go fishing with him or hang out with him. And I just wanted a ride to a skate park or borrow money that I can go spend on Mountain Dew. We were not the same type of guy. And I was the shittiest of all teenagers where I just like could not care less about anything he could have possibly taught me. In 1999, my junior year of high school, my stepdad was going through all of these preparations for Y2K. And Y2K was supposed to just make computers go crazy and everything was going to go nuts. So he said, he seems to be the only person in my town, my family, possibly the state of Louisiana, that is even remotely concerned. And he decided to start stockpiling. I was the only other somewhat of a man in the house with him. So I helped him stockpile toilet paper, paper towels, canned goods, and just a frightening amount of guns. Things ratchet up once we get closer to New Year's when I actually drive into town with him with these three giant vats in the back of his pickup truck to fill them up with gasoline for when shit went down. New Year's comes. There's absolutely no Y2K. And Rod is so depressed. He is just defeated. For a guy who fought in Vietnam, this is the biggest loss of his life. It's pretty tough. And so he's just around the house and he's not looking so good. Rod's just clearly depressed. About a month later, this is, I guess it's February, we're sitting around after dinner, we're just finishing up at a table in our dining room. My sister puts up her dishes and starts running bath water. And for some reason, Rod snaps. I guess she just kept the water running and he was very concerned about the hot water. And I'm just so confused by what's going on. And I clearly haven't learned my lesson from eighth grade and I decided to stand up for the woman again. So... I stand up for her and I'm like, hey man, be cool. It's not a big deal. <laughs> and I have the worst negotiating ever. And he flips out and demands that I get the F out of his house. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to do that, clearly, because I am 16 and I live here. And so he's freaking out and charges me. And somehow, in quick thinking, I managed to get him as he lunged toward me in a headlock. So I have this short, stocky, 230-pound guy in a headlock, and I weigh about 110 pounds. And I am just, like, riding him like a Bronco, like some kind of cowboy, and it's getting wild. But I'm still, like, going, what are you doing? While he says, get the F out of my house! Get the F out of my house! And this lasts for a little while. Then Rod really starts to push me toward the front door. And you can tell that he's having trouble once we get to the door. My arm's around his head, so to open the lock... He's got to reach around my body and fumble with the locks. And we have like, you know, there's like the top latch and then you have the little chain. And he's like, he's having a tough time. And it's a bigger thing than it should have been. He clearly didn't think this through. So finally he gets the door open and he's trying to fidget me out of the door. And somehow I lunge and spin and toss him outside. 
And there was this weird moment where we both look at each other and the doors open and I just slam the door shut and lock it. And then I'm fortunate to have one of the doors with a porthole where I was able to open the shade slowly and just watch him freak the fuck out. Then my mom is just crying and she's kind of a mess. She just walks outside slowly and tells him that she is going to divorce him. And then, since he was still a pilot, my mom took us on a ski trip to Banff, Canada, because we flew for free until the divorce was final, which was one of the best times of my life. So I guess, you know, you take the good with the bad. What you're hearing this very second is Sex Mob on the Risk Podcast. After that tale, we call End Time by the Raging Cajun Mr. Zach Broussard. He's at ZachTheSquare.com. Before that, the very vegan Labia Rogers singing about her soy juice. And mm, what soy juice it is. If you're looking for Labia, she's at MindyRaff.com. Now, the previous live show, the one-of-a-kind Matt Higgins took a risk in the very way he told his story. He set a hat on a mic stand and brought up Al Houghton to accompany him on guitar. We call this one The Setup. just a little baby and uh, I was bouncing back and forth between New York City and Pennsylvania and constantly bumming rides from people because I didn't own a car and I still don't and so one day I asked my dad for a lift to the train station and uh, we were on Bristol Road when I realized that I I didn't have my hat. My Irish tweed cap. And so I said, I said, hey dad, um, can we turn around because I think I forgot something. And he said to me, I'm not your fucking taxi cab driver. Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Fuck you! Like 40 times I screamed it in his face. Just like that. Fuck you! And I opened the door to the moving car and I tried to get out and he slowed down and I jumped out and I ran and I ran <laughs> <laughs> 
and I hid behind this bush on the side of Bristol Road. And I could see my dad in his white Buick company car that was always speckled with locomotive oil from being around the trains that he worked around. And as he trolled really slowly back and forth with a line of traffic building up behind him, he called my name. back in the car <laughs> and we never spake a word about it <laughs> not the one never so that's the story that I wanted to share with you tonight but as I was thinking about it I thought to myself, well first I should really find out why I reacted like a crazy man. <laughs> so on Tuesday night, September 14th, 2009, just a couple days ago, <laughs> I called my brother Steve on the phone. I called Steve because like all of my six siblings, he's brilliant. He's a neonatologist. A tiny baby doctor. He's normal sized, but the babies, they're tiny. The thing about Steve is, Steve got into the most intense battles with my dad. So I called Steve, and he was happy to talk to me. It was the night before his birthday, September 15th, this is his birthday. At the end of this conversation, I said, oh yeah, happy birthday. He laughed. So, I, so we got to talking, right? And we got to talking about how we grew up in a small house in the city of Philadelphia. Three bedrooms, seven kids, five kids in one bedroom, two bunk beds, and a baby bed in the middle. I was on the low side on this one, he was on the high side on this one right here. And, and at night, we would pass out Mike and Ike's to each other, contraband. And we would sing songs. My brother John was learning how to play the guitar. And we would sing, green, green, the grass is green on the far side the hill I'm leaning on a jet plane and the door would swing open and there'd be a silhouette of my dad standing there in his boxer shorts with his hair all messed up and a belt and he would whack my brother with the belt he would whack him and my brother would be in the corner of the bed like this and I'd be in my bed like this pretending to Brother Steve said to me on Tuesday night, September 14, 2009, he said to me, why 
Why was it only me that he hit? I said, I don't know, man. Proximity? <laughs> birth order? Maybe it was birth order, man. You know, indirectly, birth order lent to you being in that bunk where, you know. And he said, no. I just read this article about about birth order and it said the whole thing's bullshit. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but maybe that was written by an oldest born. I don't know, we're two middle kids. What can I say? Steve's a little bit older than me. I'm a little bit younger than him, of course. So I said, I said to him, uh, Steve, do you remember the, do you remember the fight that happened in the kitchen? And he said, oh my God. He set me up for it. I was supposed to pick him up. I was supposed to pick him up at the train station after he was done work. And, uh, and I, I was five minutes late, right? And, uh, and he started to walk home, and, and I couldn't find him. He said, and, uh, and my dad obviously took some sort of circuitous route home, so he couldn't be seen, he couldn't be found, right? So my brother gets home to the house, my dad's in the kitchen, and my brother comes into the house, and he walks into the kitchen to apologize to my dad, and my dad goes at him. And my brother, my brother goes, he says that he went to call the cops, but I think that I went to call the cops, but it doesn't matter, because the phone got ripped out of the wall, and my brother cracked my dad right in the face, and my dad hit the ground, and my brother jumped on top of him, and my dad reached back and opened the drawer, and reached his hand into the drawer, and he pulled out a spatula, and he whacked my brother on the head, and broke broke the spatula. Broken. We never talked about that fight, but we continued to use the spatula every Sunday, flipping flapjacks before we were forced to go to church. And I said to my dad, I said, I mean, I said to, hello, Dr. Freud, I said to my brother, I said to my brother, but why did you react that way? Why did you react that way? He said, because I was set up. He set us up. He would make us feel scared and cornered and like we had no other recourse but to get violent and lash out at him and he set you up too. Now, I didn't tell him the story that I'm telling you right now, right? But he said to me, he said, you know, Matt, there was one time when, when daddy told me that, um, that you got upset because you couldn't find your hat and then he laughed because he said he took your hat to work and left it there. <laughs> Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he set me up? set up. He was set up by circumstances. He was set up by alcoholism that in 1947 killed his Irish immigrant father and forced my father to work two jobs to raise his brothers and sisters and his immigrant Irish worker woman mother, washerwoman mother. Right? He was set up. He was set up by the railroad. He was set up by the railroad that he worked for his entire adult life. The railroad that he would get up at the crack of a bird's ass for dutifully. The railroad that exposed him to CPCBs. The railroad that when he retired gave him a choo-choo train telephone. <laughs> 
grateful and proud. But in 1970, he checked himself into Livingren Alcoholic Hospital. And he kicked that inherited disease called alcoholism. He kicked it in the ass. And he, and he beat it. When he was diagnosed with, with a, a rare esophageal cancer, a cancer that coincidentally killed his buddy at work, my dad fought for three years. And, and, and as, I, as I see him right now during that three years, what I see right, I see it, it, a frail, um, sort of ghostly, pale spirit, demons defeated. And the man I see is truly my father. That man's my father. He died in his own bed. And my brother Steve was the doctor that made the declaration. Everybody left the room and we were hanging out with my dad and we made him look nice, we combed his hair, we put him in PJs, and it was just me and Steve. And Steve was sitting at the foot of my father's bed and he said, huh, dad has a deviated septum. I said, really? Let's see, and we examined him. And I said, do I? And I laid down next to my dad. And my brother said, no. You don't. Whew. I guess in some small way I'm not like him. But do I set do I set people up? I don't know. That's my daughter's hat. right by his grave and says it says Korean War Vet and his headstone says I fought the good fight I finished the race I kept the faith just finished graduate school at my hippie-dippie college in Connecticut, and I was moving to New York. I found a place on Craigslist. I show up, and she's like, oh, sorry, my sister rented it to someone else. 
My cousins take pity on me and let me move into their apartment. It's the last stop on the F train. So I was really anxious to get an apartment that wasn't seven hours from the city. And I finally found one that sounded great. It was a studio in New York. This sounded so wonderful. I was so excited. The broker and the uh, landlord failed to mention that my next-door neighbor had tried to stab five people. And she would stick dog elimination, dog number two, in a little plastic bag that she would tie with a bow right in front of everyone's door. She was a horrible human being. I mean, she would ash on her dog's feet. She took my mezuzah down off my um, door. She called me a kike whore. This woman was crazy. And you would call the cops, and they'd be like, I'm not dealing with her. That was always the response. Was like, she'd already been to Bellevue. They'd already legally terminated her. But they couldn't get her out because that's New York. So I eventually couldn't take it anymore. I said, forget Manhattan. I can't afford this. I'm moving to Brooklyn. And when I moved in the very first day, the landlady had left me all these pamphlets, like the kind you would find in a clinic or maybe in an auditorium for an assembly on safe sex. But she had left these out uh, as a helpful way to let this single gal in the city know what's what. But it was very sort of sweet in a maternal way. That sentiment lasted very shortly because starting on uh, day one, I started to wake up to notes. And again, she lived right below me, so there was no reason she couldn't just come and talk to me. But instead, she would send me um, notes daily. And they would go things like, Katie, spelled incorrectly, C-A-T-E-Y. My name was spelled differently in almost every note. Katie, after leaving you a reminder, we were distressed to find plastic bags in the paper bin. Please check the written standards and comply with them. Yours, Mrs. Friend. I love that her last name is Friend. So these notes kept going on and on, and it got to the point where I would get blamed for things I didn't do, like the next note where my name is spelled K-A-T i.e. get those mattresses off the sidewalk. Put them out before the bulk pickup, i.e. Thursday night. Please respect the city's regulations. Please respect your neighbors. Please respect yourself. They weren't my mattresses. So this beautiful home that I was so excited about (laughs) was quickly becoming like an uncomfortable experience to like just get in the door and out because I didn't want to run into them. I just couldn't figure out what I was like doing wrong that this woman didn't like me and I really wanted things to be better so I sent them a Christmas card saying you know thank you for this apartment and I promised to recycle this card in the correct bin. Things seem to get better but it's that awkward kind of we're gonna make peace by not really making peace. We're just not gonna be mean anymore. So the way that she showed that without telling me was, Katie, I wanted to let you know that this weekend, because of Half Moon Sword Dance Festival, a team of sword dancers will be staying over at our house from Friday to Monday. We may not have enough hot water for everyone, though we'll all try to use it sparingly, which is a way to let me know that I should too. We may also have the heat higher at night because we don't have a lot of extra blankets, i.e., do you have any extra blankets we could borrow? And I don't know why she didn't just ask for the blankets, but I didn't actually end up going to the Half Moon Sword Dance Festival. I know that they were very excited about it, but I felt grateful that they were trying to share with me their simple pleasures, even if they're a little different. So it came time for my lease to be renewed, and 
I was hoping to stay. It's really hard to find an apartment in New York. I had been through so much, having my stuff broken, having my mezuzah knocked off my door by that crazy uh, woman who called me a kike whore. It had been hard. New York can be really hard on you. And I wanted to stay in this beautiful home, however imperfect it was. And the note I got from Mrs. Friend was typed up. But the way that I got the note was certified mail. I had to walk six blocks to the post office to pick this up. And this is what the final note from Mrs. Friend, my landlady, said. Dear Katie, in speaking with you, we have sought ways to accommodate your requests. But unfortunately, we are not able to provide the level of services you need. The lease you signed was for living accommodations, which you inspected prior to the signing of the lease. The signing of the lease was an agreement to rent the apartment quote-unquote, as is. In view of your desire for additional services that we are unable to provide, we think it would be in your best interest and ours if you seek other living arrangements. We would consider releasing you from further obligations under the lease you signed. Sincerely, Mr. and Mrs. Friends. In all seriousness, I genuinely felt bad for her. I felt sort of compassionately sad that I couldn't be the tenant she wanted me to be. I couldn't be the friend who was going to stitch and crochet and go to sword moon dance festivals. And as much as I loved this apartment, I didn't love getting notes every day. So that was it. I left that apartment and I now live in the front of the building on a first floor in Manhattan. And oftentimes people will smoke right outside my window, right into my mouth. And I'll think I may get cancer, but Mrs. Friend will be much happier now. The lovely Katie Lazarus with her tale, Tiff Notes. She's at DrLazarus.com. Before that, music from Chris Ola on MySpace at Chris Ola Music. Uh, He asked, can I be on the show if I'm only 17? Now he has his answer. One more story from our live show that's right after this very important message. Sometimes you're walking down that street, From behind, you see a girl you'd like to meet. Her hair is long and she has a purposeful stride. Risk it all, ask her out. Whoops, oh, it's a guy. Ben and me were best friends since the first grade. And what had happened was it was a cold and gray and rainy day and we were at recess at Westwood Public School and we were in this room with like gated windows and paintings of dinosaurs all over the walls. And I remember I was talking to an imaginary friend off in a corner (laughs) while everyone else was playing around. And this little kid comes up to me, and he's a cute little guy. He kind of looks like, um, uh, like a you know, real young Paul McCartney. And he says, <laughs> he says, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm talking to my imaginary friend. And I said, his name's Henry, and he's a piano. And, and Ben said, uh, he can talk? And I said, well, no, he can sing. Well, 
both of us thought this was hilarious. And we just started laughing together, and pretty soon we had forgotten all about the singing piano Henry, and we started calling each other Henry. And this lasted right up to the beginning of the seventh grade, the two of us calling each other Henry. In fact, we even started something, we organized all our friends into what we called the Henry Club. And depending on how special you are, you would get ranking in it, like we had like a three quarters Henry, that sort of thing. There could only be two Henrys. Um, and of course, we, we, we started having sleepovers all the time, and we, we just started hanging out with each other, you know, in every which way. And I remember uh, one night we snuck into his neighbor's pool, and I think maybe I crapped on a frisbee, and we set it on fire, and then floated it in the pool. And then I remember <laughs> another occasion where we, he had this big, big yard, and I remember this, this time when we were like running around acting like we were Indiana Jones on horseback, you know, chasing around. And, um, and we learned that it was okay for boys to like Broadway musicals. We started listening to Jesus Christ Superstar, and we started our own drama club. It was called uh, The Gym Shoes. And most important, we told each other everything. You know, it was like that soulmate sort of thing that you experience where you just feel like your conversations about God and life and sex and all that stuff are just discoveries uh, that maybe no one's even had before. Uh, so, eventually, the movie E.T. ruined it. <laughs> I saw this movie and it just brought up something in me that I had never told Ben about. Um, I'd known my whole life that I was attracted to boys, but I'd never told anyone about this. And I tried hard not to talk to myself about it or to think about it. But by the time I was 12, I, it, it wasn't just sex with boys that I was interested in. I was starting to become interested in the idea of like a best friend in a romantic way, a boyfriend. And this just made me feel super, super alone in the world. So I see this movie E.T. and there's this little boy, Elliot, in the movie. And in the setup of the movie, you learn that his father has died, he doesn't have any friends his age, he's lonely. He wants some sort of like your 10-year-old equivalent of a soulmate. Now, I'm perfectly aware, and I was aware then too, that E.T. is not a romantic love story. <laughs> but for me, it just kind of was. <laughs> and by the end of this movie, because I, what, what had happened is I, I had just fallen head over heels in love with this little boy, Elliot. And I kind of like, you know, was uh, identifying with the strange little brown thing from outer space. <laughs> so by the end of this movie, when they're saying goodbye, uh, it's just like I was, 
a sobbing mess. And I woke up the next morning and I just couldn't hold it back anymore. I, I couldn't like not deal with this anymore. So I said to myself, I whispered to myself right there in bed, I said, okay, I'm gay. And it was monumental. I was, I was only 12, but to me it felt like, oh, finally. And you know, I had recently read Huckleberry Finn, and it was so weird because it reminded me so much of the climactic moment for, for Huck Finn in the book. Uh, you know, he's been taught by the Bible and by his Christian family that slavery is good and that to help a slave escape is, you know, deadly sinful, like going to hell sinful. And he spends pages agonizing over this because he's helping his friend Jim uh, escape. And finally he gets to the point where he makes a decision and he says, all right then, I'll go to hell. And it's, that's kind of the way I felt, because I was also raised you know, very, very Catholic and all that sort of thing. It, it, it's, a, it's a feeling of relief, because you're being true to yourself, but it's also a feeling of dread. You know, like, okay, I, okay I'm accepting the mantle of my doom. So, uh, I had all this on my mind. A couple weeks later when uh, Ben and I my best friend Ben and I were at this swimming pool of a next-door neighbor not the one that we had floated crap on a frisbee uh, neighbors we felt better toward and I just started to feel like I needed to get something out about this like I you know I if I couldn't share it with him who could I, who could I share it with that sort of thing so very awkwardly, I started to bring up this subject. I said, you know, about E.T. <laughs> I said, I think that that movie, like, meant something different to me than most people. And he said, huh? Well, how? I said, well, that boy, Elliot, I, um, I just felt something about him and there was just this awkward silence and we switched the subject we went on to talk about something else so that was awkward and awful ten minutes go by and I'm like you know what I'm gonna try this again <laughs> so now I start bringing up something that had happened a couple weeks before there had been this big massive water fight on my street. Balloons, hoses, buckets, the whole thing. And my mom had come out and yelled at us all and said, you guys get downstairs, here's some towels, dry off, all that sort of thing. So it's me and five other guys from the neighborhood. And we're all worked up and sweaty and wet and we're taking off our clothes. And I thought it might be a good idea to suggest a game of truth or dare. So I kind of nonchalantly did that, and before you know it, everyone's showing their private parts, and I told Ben, I had a great time. Well, now he's kind of looking at me like he's never looked at me in the whole time we've known each other from the first grade on. He's looking at me like, um, 
I don't know, like I like I just done something really horrible, and he just said, "You're sick," and I kind of um, awkwardly laughed, and we got out of the pool, and we just kind of started making our way down back to his house, and we really didn't say anything to each other, and then as I left his house to go home we kind of mumbled see ya and that was my first attempt to come out of the closet to anyone well seventh grade was beginning like the next week so all of a sudden we're back it's recess again you know everyone's expecting the henry's to be the henry's and all that sort of thing well things weren't going well because ben was criticizing everything I said now. Everything I said, somehow I was dead wrong. He was very aggressively just disagreeing with me about things. And suddenly, we had just become bickering, 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 you know, like, like a married couple that's just about to kill each other. And it was scary for me because I, I'm not a fighting type. Well, finally, a day comes when we're out at recess on the playground and the word pelvis came up in conversation. <laughs> and I thought that only males had pelvises. And Ben knew better. So all of a sudden we're bickering about this. And now I should have just stepped off of this conversation because I had never really done a lot of research on the female anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> but it just got more heated and more heated, and I was like, oh, you just think you're perfect. And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I just think I'm perfect, sure. So it's time to get into a single file line and go back into the school, because recess is over. So he's right behind me, and he decided to get one more dig in at me. And he said, maybe you'd know a little bit more about pelvises if you weren't so focused on the boys next door. Well. I whipped around and I just said the first bad word I could think of to him. I just said, bitch. <laughs> and I turned back around and I thought, oh no. That was the gayest bad word I could say. But I was also thinking, we're not speaking to each other anymore. And indeed, that was the case. A period called the darkness had begun. <laughs> so our friends had to choose sides. The faculty knew about it. I mean, it was it was news that Kevin that the two Henrys weren't speaking anymore. And one of the first things that happened was there were going to be student council elections. And you know, when it was announced who was running. Uh, Ben and I learned that each, we were the two candidates for student council presidents. I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, great. You know, how to, how, great way to dramatize this even more. Well, pretty soon, little stickers start showing up, you know, on desks or, you know, uh, on walls. Just very small stickers that say, Kevin Allison is a bisexual. Um, so I guess he was trying to hedge his bets. <laughs> but I was being swift-boated, definitely. 
Well, what happened was the big rally, the big pep rally came around where everyone was going to make their speeches. And Ben got up and he did this uh, speech that was very, you know, like just your traditional, you know, vote for me, blah, 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 very political speech. But I took a risk. I got up there and just took that mic and I said to the whole assembly, when I say cool, you say beans. Cool, beans, cool, beans. And that was it. <laughs> and I won. <laughs> Apparently I had put my finger on the zeitgeist with the whole cool beans bit. Well, it was only a matter of weeks before Ben had collected all of these signatures to have me impeached and all that kind of, but that didn't work either. So, going into eighth grade now, things had kind of simmered down between us. And this is when I was really keeping journals. So you can very clearly see that, um, you know, we were kind of starting to very indirectly float messages to one another kind of, sort of, through friends. And then, because it was such a small school, we would occasionally end up having to do things in groups together. And I'd noticed that we were kind of making inside jokes that would only make each other laugh. And finally, at the end of the year, my last act as student council president was to create a list of awards for everyone in the eighth grade. And it was totally silly. I mean, the, the awards were ridiculous. Uh, and for his, I, I want to make sure I get this right, I wrote, best generally good person who probably wouldn't want to get an award from someone like me. <laughs> so at this point, we were just kind of like a sitcom romance that was taking one too many seasons to get going, you know? Um, so finally, this day arrives where I'm beginning to feel like what's really happening is that we are, under the text of what's going on, a gay guy and a straight guy who are kind of starting to feel like we could still be friends. So, one day, I was making a radio comedy uh, with my little uh, Radio Shack cassette deck, and it was called I was a teenage doorknob. It was a half hour comedy with music and all this. Uh, and it was a horror movie or a horror story. And I had invited a lot of friends to play different voices on it. And finally, I had to do the last scene, the big last, which was a song written to the tune of Oklahoma. <laughs> so I got this idea to call Ben and invite him over. So I scripted it out with handwriting, what I would say. And I called him and he answered. And I, I swear, I felt like I had a fever. I was so nervous. But I, I you know, briefly told him, you know, there's a tape recording going on. We're going to do some music, blah, blah, blah. And I finally said, uh, you could come over too, I guess. <laughs> well, he did. He did. He came on over, and we listened to what we had recorded of I Was a Teenage Doorknob so far, and just laughed and laughed. So here we were, after 21 months, 
we were doing the thing that we had been doing that first hour that we had met. We were just laughing together. So the darkness had passed, and we've never been back there since. Thank you. was yours truly a story we call the darkness and before that some springsteening from the boys at ninjasexparty.com folks these wars are over and so is this episode of risk risk is created by me kevin allison our producer is michelle walson our sound engineer is nick montalbano our episode editor is mike cades our story editors are jeff mercel and andy croner our associate producers are timothy meehan emily altman and madison perry and remember what the Israelis say about risk. Don't bother someone else's testicles for no reason. Just have a reason.